right. Well, welcome everybody to uh, episode two of the uh, P1 podcast, the one I am lovingly referring to as the people who actually did the work. And today we have uh, uh, Jeff and Matt on. I'll let them introduce themselves in their own ways uh, and then just spend some time talking through um, what it what it, what technically happened at Platform One besides just what the uh, the officers were running around telling people um, and really hear it from from the horse's mouth itself and and it kind of just peel back the onion on what worked what worked what didn't work um, and just see where the conversation goes. Uh, so we'll start with with Matt. Why don't you introduce yourself and we'll pass it over to Jeff. Sure thing. So I am Matt Houston. I am the CISO for Platform One. Uh, I handle a lot of the authorizations and the policies uh, that are associated, uh, created a, a lot of the uh, pipeline documentation and got us, uh, kept us from going to jail uh, from the security side of the house. Yep. Uh, Jeff McCoy, I, I was the CTO of Platform One um, for some time. I don't know how long, maybe a few days or something. Um, and before that, Space Camp with Matt and Kessel Run. Um, and then just a random Air Force dude pointing satellites at the sky for 15 years. Yeah, I think uh, in my mind, Jeff and Matt always made one whole person. There was like a chaos creator maker of Jeff and Matt holding him back of like not sending us to jail and following all the policy we were supposed to from a technical aspect. So it was really a, a beautiful marriage in my mind when I met both of you. Uh, so Drew, I'll pass it over to you for the next question. Well, I mean, I, I refer to Jeff and myself as Jeff being the exhibit at the zoo, and I'm the zookeeper shoveling the crap that Jeff is throwing out. Nothing's changed. <laughs> I always considered it like a rubber band type relationship where Jeff would run really far forward, and then Matt would just like, like swing no. forward to catch up. Then we'd move on to the next thing, and we just keep like, doing that. Ridiculous idiot. Let's let him a little bit. <laughs> But we never snapped, so it totally worked. By the way, it's just exactly the same at my new company. So. Um, so you guys touched a little bit on your backgrounds, but I think one of the most powerful things from your message is of the people that kind of were the OGs at Space Camp and Platform One, like you guys were no kidding software developers in the Air Force and had over a decade of experience. And there, can you talk a little bit about how fun that was and why P1 and some of your later assignments were maybe better? Uh, we'll start with Jeff this time. Yeah, so um, I, I think you have to go back to what someone called the pre-Kessel Run days. Um, so Enrique Odi um, is a madman, and he was at DIU, then DIUX, um, and he had this idea to take some leftover funding and go to Pivotal Labs and bring some random Air Force people that they interviewed and found. They, they just found these random people to, to hire and prove that the Air Force could build software internally, that airmen could build software. All of us got there like already knew the stuff, you know, most of the stuff that they were teaching, but it was great to have a new light because I'd always been an individual developer. I built, designed, created software, many different things on my own, but never worked in a big team. So it was some growing pains for me. Jeff, if I remember correctly, you actually passed the interview for a designer position, not a developer, uh, right? Said it was a bad interview. For the record, all I said was, I design software that users love. It doesn't mean that I just design and don't create, but they interpret that as, oh, design. He said that key word. I guess that means he's a designer. So after the first day at Pivotal Labs, they changed me to be an engineer. Um, but yes, I was hired on as a designer. That's the reason I actually beat Matt to Pivotal Labs. So when I started, it was like Mike Neerum and myself were the first two Air Force engineers that would become Kessel Run. A month later, uh, Barrett LaFrance and others joined, including Matt Houston, for the actual software development team. But by then, 
I should have. I was there as a designer, now software engineer. So I actually cheated to get my way in earlier. I can't believe I never knew that Jeff McCoy was actually a designer, not a software developer. That that was his first learning for me. Why do you have to bring this up? It's so embarrassing. Jeff showed up with a portfolio, uh, and that is what really drove it home to hire him in as a designer. But it was software that I had built, not just design. I was showing up because I had a small business um, doing software in the Air Force on the side because enlisted pay sucks. So I just was writing software freelance and I had a portfolio that I showed them they're like oh he must design software designer that's hilarious yeah I think I learned that from you when we were writing some bios for some ridiculous event that we were having way too much fun with and you're like yeah I, like the only thing you need to know about me is I suck at interviews and I got hired to be a designer when really I'm a developer and I was like this is perfect <laughs> <laughs> awesome so Matt over to you uh, and if you want to talk a little bit of pre-KR days as well I think there's some good context to be had from uh, the life before, if you will. Sure, yeah. Um, when it comes to like the, the story, the origin of a lot of the DevSecOps movement uh, that we have going on through the Air Force, um, there, whenever we got interviewed uh, to come out to Kessel Run, there were only three of us who were actual programmers uh, <laughs> that got included in this effort. Um, Jeff not being one of them, uh, but it was myself, Barrett LaFrance and John Ringer uh, who were Air Force programmers and lived a life uh, prior to that effort. Um, so that kind of put me in a weird spot uh, because I actually knew what the process was to get an authorization. Um, and of the three of us programmers, Barrett was a, a cross trainee that had just been working over at Wicca. Uh, and then John Ringer was a senior airman who'd never got an ATO. Uh, so I come in there with the, a lot of that ATO knowledge and really just hated the process. It was a horrible process that every three years you had to wait 12 months uh, to actually build out a new package to submit it to somebody you don't know in the hopes that they're going to sign off on it. Uh, so that's what a lot of the legacy PMOs were about. Um, but what that ended up being for me is, yes, I came in there as an engineer writing some code. Things were great. Uh, they found out that I had this information, and the next thing you know, I'm doing compliance documents and responding to fortified controls, okay. and you know, having to uh, identify what what we really wanted to do for a continuous ATO. Uh, and then, of course, as a team, we built out you know what some other good to haves that we knew we needed to include uh, to make a proper CI environment. Um, so I spent uh, six years over at Scott Air Force Base in a, uh, a little software area, um, writing some AMC apps. Uh, before going over to NATO, I was working at NATO headquarters and uh, I got some experience. They put me as a network server admin. So not even in the programmer career field, uh, but that gave me some insight that actually proved to be quite useful for what we were trying to accomplish uh, with the DevSecOps movement. Um, and then I got stuck in a hole in Gunner, the black hole for programmers, uh, and then was looking for any opportunity to dig myself out. Uh, and then came uh, Enrique Odi interviewing us to go out to California for a little while. And uh, next thing you know, I'm PCSing with Jeff and Mike uh, to go live in California and Silicon Valley. Hey, one other thing too, that's really interesting about networking, the power of networking. Um, so this announcement for Enrique Odi's hiring event, I didn't get the email because it was looked at, I was in the AETC as an instructor and they didn't feel like it was relevant to me. 
but I had met a dude at Cyber 200 training last, the year before that, who we talked about this nerd crap. He, he saw the email, thought of me, emailed me the day that my commander, the only time in her two-year tour, she was going to come to our detachment to visit us, that she was coming. And so she was on the way, and I stopped my boss and said, hey, there's this opportunity. Can I pitch this to the commander while she's here this one time in her entire tour? And he's like, I guess. But like, I would have, a chain of events had to occur for that to happen. That just happened to be somebody I met and remembered me from a year prior. And then they told me, otherwise, I never would have even known about the email. I never saw it officially myself. And actually, I have a similar story. Uh, I was a tech sergeant, and I had an airman who was actually talking to one of his friends that was another airman in a different branch that heard about this opportunity. And my airman, you know, being responsible, he wanted a, a chance to get involved. He came to me and he's like, Sergeant Houston, I, I, I want to, uh, you know, put my name in the hat and try to do this. And I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> and so I started running it up my chain, you know, trying to find where this tasker is at uh, to find out that our branch chief had decided that nobody within our branch was eligible for this opportunity uh, at which point I put together two packages, one for myself, one for my airmen. Uh, and then, you know, there, I think there was one other guy within uh, PEO Bez that uh, put a package in and then we did interviews and then ultimately I got accepted. Making me feel some shame as a former officer there, Matt. Uh, but I also learned something about you today. Whereas Jeff failed the interview, you failed day one on the job because you told them you knew what an ATO was. And we're stuck being a cyber guy. Well, to be clear, I didn't tell them day one. This ended up being like week two or three. Uh, but yeah, then I got stuck. And as you can see, as a CISO, uh, <laughs> I still have that stink on me. The cyber stench never goes away. That's what I've learned as well. True. It's a stain <laughs> on your life and your soul. True. <laughs> um, one of, one of the most interesting things that I think I watched happen at Platform One specifically in this like kind of startup culture within the DoD, been um, trying to figure out product market fit. And what I mean by that is we were building something, we weren't sure who wanted it or whether they'd give us money for it. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll start with uh, Jeff this time. Uh, when we started Platform One, tell me from your perspective what you think we were supposed to be building <laughs> and then maybe where we what we Bad ended up question. building. Um, because it was never clear to me and I was there the whole time. And then, and then like six to eight months later, I think it started to crystallize a little bit more. But at first I was just like, I don't know, we're like doing a thing. We're doing the DevOps thing, right? So tell me, tell me from your perspective, Jeff. You want to know a terrible secret that's going to really tick off a few select people? I've never read a DevSecOps reference architecture. Oh my gosh, that that actually makes me super happy that that's a true Ever. statement. I've tried. I was going to say that, so that's boring. not a surprise at all. It's so boring. <laughs> Even the rewrite, I've glanced at it, it looks better, but it's it's just a snoozer. Anyway, um, so for those that don't know, we were at Space Camp and Happy, by the way, and doing our thing. And Nick Shalon came and um, ripped us out of the arms of our, our cozy little place we were happily working at. Um, and it was it was a bit of a drug deal. And and for there are people who really hate Nick, and they're probably fair in their hate for him because he can be a bit of a jerk sometimes but it's it's part of a process to to affect change and and so and not it's not all good right we, we have that the, the pros and cons to that style uh, but he was a disruptor 
at, at, an, at a very high level. And so we felt like we really believed in this idea of, of platform, um, not centralization necessarily, because that's not really true, but an open ecosystem of sharing for a platform. Because I always, I've always frustrated by the stovepipe nature of all systems in the DoD, you know, from the weapon system level to just programmatics to everything's just stovepiped. And it's, it really goes back to empire building and, and defending your funds or defending your billets. And it's just, it's absolutely disgusting. I mean, I wish senior leaders would actually, you know, be more brave there and rethink that entire model because it's mm -hmm. terrible. Um, but for me, this was a chance to maybe do that, like what softwareforge.mil try to do like that open ecosystem at the DESA level to share code and to share resources and to share learning. That's what I'd hoped would happen. And so we were just trying to build stuff for an open ecosystem that was all public. You could see it all, you could critique it all, and people did. Um, what we didn't appreciate, one was the kind of dynamics of politics around Nick and his wanting to mandate things. And, and me and Rob really not wanted to mandate anything. He just wanted to compel people to use it by just by the goodness of it. What we didn't appreciate though was that some organizations saw it as a threat to their, their ability to get to gain influence or dollars or people or something. And so they made it really hard to work together. And, and that was unfortunate. But the original intent was to just build an open ecosystem. I didn't like Iron Bank at first. In fact, I told Nick it was a piece of garbage and I wouldn't use it. Um, and that was when we started Platform One. Uh, so I told him it'd be valuable once I decided, um, once it was good enough that I could say, hey, I want to do a new thing. I'll use Iron Bank first. That's when it had met the grade. That took like eight months after Platform One started. Like we didn't, it just wasn't where it needed to be. Um, so there was a lot of things we had to grow into, but the biggest thing I think for me was the COVID thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later on, but that kind of pivotal moment in P1's early history where we made a choice to build something for warfighter collaboration before everything else, it really set the narrative on what we did after that point, I think. Yeah, Jeff, you made the same mistake of saying a product sucks at the enterprise level, and then uh, you had to go fix it. Um, so yep. you're welcome. Uh, like Matt talking about his cyber skills. Uh, so, so Matt, tell me uh, answer as well. Like, what do you think we were building, and what we end up building, and how did that change along the way? So, you know, Jeff and I, whenever we were getting involved, um, we have no loyalty to our organization, right? Uh, we were absent guys who were living in California on the wrong coast, uh, coming over here to Colorado Springs, working on a platform for somebody who didn't want us. Uh, so as we were building this out, what we were really trying to do is support uh, the Department of the Air Force to support as many customers as we could uh, just to help out and truly like bring that engineering to others. Um, so, you know, we would bring in some absent projects. We would reach out to Army Futures Command. And, you know, we were really just trying to uh, wrangle everybody together so that way we could have that open architecture. We could have uh, different eyes on. Uh, we believed in the culture that we had established within uh, Kessel Run, uh, at least the way it was originally designed, um, to really just foster that open communication. Uh, and that's what we were, you know, trying to portray. And we looked at, you know, Platform One as an opportunity, one, to partner up with uh, some other folks down in San Antonio, uh, but two, to have some backing at the enterprise level so that way we could do this at a larger scale. 
And I think that's, in my mind, where we were heading. Uh, we were very happy, as Jeff mentioned, with Space Camp. Uh, we had caught our stride. We had gotten our authorizations. We've proven that Kessel Run wasn't a lightning strike, right? Uh, and we were really moving things forward. Uh, but we wanted an opportunity to see, okay, how else can we impact uh, the greater community? How could we stretch it out? How could we scale this to support others? Uh, you know, if it meant, you know, having some more folks coming in to get a taste for what uh, DevSecOps could be, and then moving on and helping them create their environments, working with some of the other communities. Uh, but, um, you know, that's, that's really what I felt uh, we were trying to do as we were standing this up. Um, as Jeff mentioned, Nick is definitely has a, uh, a rough exterior, um, but I mean, he wasn't wrong. He knew that he had to break some of the China uh, to be able to get us to move forward. Um, and to some extent that was good. And to a lot of extent, it wasn't. It did hurt some of our relationships that we had um, that we are now in the process of trying to uh, patch up. Following up on one of the, the things you guys kind of both mentioned, a little bit of the politics, a little bit of fiefdoms and kingdom building. I don't know that there was a day at P1 or Space Camp, I can't remember when it was, that broke my heart more than the day I came in, Matt, and you told me that you had to remove your rank from your signature block so people would actually read your emails. Like, like that that's the kind of thing we were fighting on a daily basis, right? Like, doesn't matter what your opinion is or the value of your opinion uh, to some people. And, and that was always really tough. Um, I think in a lot of ways, we overcame some of those, which is good. Um, and and kind of want to follow up and pull the thread a little bit more on this, this concept of establishing a community. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, good, better, and different uh, Nick's influence, uh, probably all three at different times to different people. Um, but can you guys walk through, because one of the main things we were trying to accomplish at Platform One was to break down silos. Can you guys walk through some of the things we tried to establish the community with the swags, with different program offices, et cetera, uh, where we failed and maybe where we could even still be better today now that uh, we've seen the world for two years and, and operated in this space? Uh, maybe start with Matt this time. Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, the entire time that Jeff and I was, you know, progressing throughout uh, this movement, uh, you know, we started Kessel Run, and then, you know, we were trying to continue to build that, and then whenever we came out here to Colorado Springs, uh, you know, we wanted to maintain some of that connection, uh, and that was the same time that Kobayashi Maru was coming up, uh, so we actually had Davis Gunther and Carlos Vare out here in Colorado Springs and trying to see how we could move forward together. Um, and, you know, as we were building things, we were trying to socialize what we were trying to accomplish. Um, there were definitely uh, some differences in opinion, uh, at which point, uh, you know, Kobayashi Maru completely broke off and, uh, you know, went their own way and made sure that they weren't uh, communicating back with us. Um, so, you know, we're we were trying to reach out. Uh, I believe, Jeff, you uh, were running some campfires. Uh, trying to bring everybody together. I mean, we continue to yeah. do uh, the Big Bang talk. There was, you know, just the Platform One talk. I mean, um, trying to find ways, avenues where people can connect uh, and then just really stretch out. And um, even if it's it's not the perfect thing for everyone, at least they'd be able to uh, get some sort of insight and be able to uh, collaborate with others who are like-minded and get some ideas uh, sparking up. 
Um, so like I said, there were a number of efforts that we tried, most failed, um, and we had to try to pivot, change the flavor of it, and uh, still try to push for that collaborative effort. You know, I think one of the things that, that also hurt a lot was um, the best intentions um, with, with Nick and Lauren, uh, which, you know, Nick's a lightning rod, Lauren is kind of one of my personal heroes, so there's that. But like between the two of them, they were trying to find ways to leverage their authorities to help make the community better. But sometimes um, the direction to towards mandates, all it did was just turn people off. Like what I wish we could have done was mandated collaboration, right? And, and let, let the ideas land where they, they land. Like that was the one thing I asked from every software factory worked with the whole time is just share your stuff back. Like, I don't care if my stuff is the best or the worst. I just wanted to have the best amongst all ideas. We, um, at my company now, Defense Unicorns, we highly believe in an idea meritocracy, and we believe in the best ideas winning out at the end of the day. That doesn't mean that the boss has the best idea or the worst idea. Just whoever has the best ideas wins. The problem with the software factory ecosystem for a long time has been, it is not that. In fact, it is, it is very much whatever the best idea is in your organization and don't share that because that, that actually could be a problem because then they could know about your weaknesses. And what we would do is we'd publish everything and people would attack the things they perceived as weakness. And we'd say, great. My phrase was, people heard a thousand times, tell us where we're stupid, tell me where I'm stupid and we'll fix it. Um, but instead what people would do is we'd publish these things out and then they would go to some other senior leader and say, see, look, this is why we can't use platform one because of this vulnerability or because of this issue. So rather than fix it, they would weaponize it against the organization but we'd still share it anyway because we we maybe we're hopeless idiots, but we just believed in this vision enough that we just kept doing it. And I did the campfires to transparently share with people who I knew were going to use the words against me later on what we were doing, what we were struggling with, because I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I still believe it was the right thing to do, even if the government is in its current state, at least in, in military, is set up to fail in that regard because of the structures of incentivization we have, but it still was worth it to try it. And I still believe in that. Um, and I do believe if every software factory and joint forces were to just share their crap and actually share the lessons learned, they would all still be better. And I know they all want what's best for the warfighter. I know they all have the best of intentions. I know it's not like just brinksmanship and political junk all the time, but something in the incentivization structure in the DOD is making these software factories sometimes play those political games. And I do think they're getting better. But I think part of it was just a mandate culture that, that we had at the top was mandating the wrong things. Like Rob and I fought vehemently, and we did it publicly too, against mandating platform one, mandating platform one DevSecOps services. We knew it was the wrong thing. We even fought against mandating Iron Bank. We just didn't believe it was the right thing to do. All I wanted was to either strongly encourage or mandate sharing and collaboration and then letting the ideas went out from there. Yeah, nobody mandates that you use Google to search the internet, right? Like you could use, you could use Bing if you wanted to. Uh, the experience else. mandates it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's all really good points. I mean, I, something you said that really resonates with me. At the end of the day, like to be truly agile, I think it requires one thing and it's the courage to be honest about your failures and just be open about them. And unfortunately, a lot of times you see a lot of perverse incentives in the government that say like, if you failed even though you want to get better and the intent is to share that, it, it becomes a weapon against you. And I, I can't tell you the number of times, and I know this will resonate with Matt, like 
pen test results come to mind right away, right? Like, oh, I should share my vulnerabilities with the rest of the DoD ecosystem so they can patch their same problems because good pen test engineers are really hard to find and we should share this information. The opposite actually feels true every day is like, if you share that information, they're gonna attack you and take your money and people. And like, they're missing the entire point of incentivizing value delivery to the warfighter instead of like empire building a budget and people to get promoted, right? And it's been one of my biggest frustrations with government work is just the, the incentive structure of getting promoted and advancing in a career is honestly against mission value a lot of times. Um, which brings me to the next question I wanna ask you, uh, and Jeff, we'll start with you this time. I, I, I didn't know it uh, internal to my soul for my over a decade of, of living in the government, but I always felt that the government could lead software successfully just as well as industry could. Um, and I tried to do it before I met you guys, and I don't think I was doing it very well because I lacked expertise in certain areas on the government uh, technical competency side. But then when I met you guys at Space Camp, I really felt like what we were about to do at Platform One and, and scaling it was going to work. And you guys kind of pioneered this, quite frankly, at your DIUX time, that which what became Kessel Run. Um, tell me, tell me just your thoughts in general about the government's relationship with the defense industrial base and like what that relationship looks like when it comes to building software, because what Kessel Run really pioneered, in my opinion, is this idea of government led software uh, integration without having a traditional system integrator doing that work for the government. Yeah, I think that that, that was what I always tried to do, right, was was to um, and try to be a lead in software as a government person, first as an E7, then later on as an NH4 uh, in the 15 pay band. And I, for, for me, it was this idea that, you know, that Kessel Run did prove, which is that, I mean, there are totally people within government who are capable of doing this. And, and, you know, and Matt and I, obviously, we both knew the whole time we could get out and make a lot more money in the commercial sector, um, but we stuck it out for a very long time. Well, Matt longer than me, because I gave up last year. Uh, we stuck it out for a very long time um years and, and a couple of decades even almost um trying to to push this forward and and do this and that doesn't mean that we did everything ourselves right it's it's more about team empowerment um and enablement um but also like not being bs'd right i think that's super important right because like if you're a if you're a govy right you're a government lead and you have no technical ability that that can be okay that's fine but you have to have somebody you trust right who has your best interest, not their company's best interest, not their agenda or whatever, but your your mission, your people that you're trying to deliver for is best interest at heart. Um, you know, which there are programs for that 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 do this, like FFRDC and, and other things um, that can can help in that regard. But you either have to be able to be that person or have somebody that can speak um, to you honestly and bluntly, and to those teams honestly that has the same interest and, and the same kind of goals and motivations, which is. I think really hard to do. And I think that a lot of software organizations um, don't have that luxury because it's it's just like, if, if you're hiring, for example, um, a vendor, right, to be your technical lead and your advisor, are they gonna advise you against to use their competitor's product? I've never see, actually seen that happen. Like I've always seen the opposite. And it's like, well, that's super convenient. You're recommending to use this, the product that you're about to make a bunch of money off of. Um, so that's like a really important thing for me is you have to, find if you're the govy and you aren't the technical person like you don't have my skill set for example that's fine you need to find that person you can trust that you know has the motivations for your customers at heart and, and not just somebody else 
Yeah, and I, I would probably say that um, what we did uh, whenever we were trying to uh, get Kelsey Run up and operational is demonstrate uh, how you can be agile, uh, right? We, we know that agile, you want to fail fast and then, you know, recover. Um, but the Air Force, it wasn't willing to do that with our own people, right? The, my programmers and uh, the, the different leaders that I had, if we failed, then, you know, we would get letters of counseling and, uh, you know, we would get in trouble and then get put on to crappy details. Um, but what we ended up doing with Kessel Run was we took responsibility, right? We, as the government leads, uh, would own the failures. We allowed the groups that we were working with to be able to push out code that didn't work and then be able to iterate on that. Uh, and the government was owning the responsibility of the success or the failure of that particular application. Uh, and I think that that's, that's really the eyes that we need to look at all of these products that we're building out. Uh, and we were able to demonstrate that at a very micro level. Uh, but what this really needs to turn into is that big Air Force needs to treat the software factories as such. Um, so we need the senior leaders, the material leaders uh, to be able to take that onus, to take that uh, failure or success and put it on their own career uh, and let the different product teams, let the different services fail. You know, as Austin, you mentioned, you know, the pen test. Uh, if I had findings within some of the pen tests, that's okay, right? That's how we get stronger. Uh, but instead, it gets weaponized and it gets, you know, fingers pointed. And that's what we can't keep having happen. And that's what is driving the culture within the, the Air Force that we're trying to change. We need that protection, that ability uh, to find something that's wrong and fix it. Instead, we end up finding something that's wrong, and then it's a fire that we're all frantically trying to fix before somebody gets in trouble. And that, that's not how it should really work. Whenever Jeff and I uh, were starting up Kessel Run, uh, we were actually told by plenty of senior leaders that this was going to be a career killer for us. And, you know, quite frankly, we put our foot forward and said, you know what, we don't care about our career as much as we care about seeing this succeed. Um, and that's what really, you know, drove us to uh, try to further along this movement. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that accountability part, because that's something in acquisitions that's always drove me insane is like, a lot of people treat it as you get to contract award and hand off the responsibility to some system integrator to build a thing. And then you sit back and you're just like, well, they're obligating and spending and like meeting a schedule. And if the schedule changes, like, oh, I don't know, you know, contractor X said it was going to be later. So it just is what it is. Whereas like, it's the government reinserting itself in the part of like, if it's failing, it's nobody's fault, but the government, right? Whether we're admitting it or not, whatever role we're taking, it's always been true. It's just been whether people are willing to have the courage to admit it. Yeah, I think one of the cool things we incorporated too from this like no vendor lock concept it's like in the early days and like think of a product like kubernetes distribution for instance comes to mind right like we know there are multiple vendors out there in that space we tried them all to jeff's point earlier like let the best idea win let's try multiple different things find the goods the bads the uglies and then like even today we use multiple different distributions because it helps our customers when they ask questions about us be like oh yeah 
we have three environments running on that. Let's engage the engineers on the team who can actually solve your problem for you instead of go ask vendor to fix vendor's problem and they give you more money or you give them more money. Yeah, uh, that, that's also a good point too because we, you know, there, there's been a lot of contention around that whole concept of you're thinking about the wrong thing if you're worried about, you know, vendor lock. Like vendor lock doesn't matter. That's a, been a very common theme I've seen, you know, on LinkedIn bubble up a lot. And, and to some degree, that's, that's totally fair. Like sometimes it doesn't matter. Like for, for example, there are vendor platforms out there for real-time operating systems that might be the only good option. And so it totally doesn't matter. But there are other times when it's just a convenience decision because they're being advised by someone who says you should do this. Like there, there's a totally different, there is a time and a place when vendor lock is not a discussion you should have. It all maps back to value. It all maps back to what you're delivering and, and how you're delivering it and what's gonna be most effective today and tomorrow and, and long-term future. And then that, that goes back to build versus buy too. Like we, I have always deferred to, to buy, buy being open source free or commercial or whatever, whenever you can, um, and only build if you must, uh, because I think that's the right thing to do for the taxpayer. Um, but sometimes there are times when you just need to build or, or modify um, open source, and that's fair too. It, it, but it, all this goes back to that, my central point of without the right technical advisement, you're going to put yourself into a corner every time. And, and we've seen it with software factories in the DoD. We've seen them have to do major pivots over time, and it's extremely painful and complicated and very costly. And, um, you know, for Kessel Run, the, like the PCF decision, when we made that decision, it made a lot of sense then. And the reason we did it was literally because we were on the fifth floor of Pivotal Labs headquarters, and the fourth floor was headquarters for PCF. And they already had a separate environment that NGA had already pioneered. There was already a lot of traction there. It made all the sense in the world to just do that. Um, but, you know, did it make sense four years later as everything was pivoted into Kubernetes? No. But at the time, it did make sense, right? So there's context that goes with that as well. And it just has to, I think the entire community needs a little bit of grace when it comes to early decisions and then how those decisions have to change over time um, because somebody coming in four years later and saying, I can't believe you guys did that four years ago. Well, okay, yeah, but four years ago, these other options weren't even a thing. So like, where were you then? Thanks a bunch. So it's, we have to have some balance and some grace as well when we, we critique prior decisions people make. Right, and I, I think along these lines, uh, the thing that I'm you know, most proud of is as we were writing our authorizations and trying to uh, you know, figure out exactly what we're doing, uh, we were able to uh, authorize practices, you know, procedures and stuff, mechanisms to swap out technologies. Uh, and that way, if you know, a particular uh, code scanner wasn't the best uh, scanner next year, we wouldn't have to wait three years until our ATO expired to go and replace it. Rather, we could you know, get, gather our body of evidence, uh, document what the analysis of alternatives were, and then move forward. Uh, and you know, that, that, I think, is how we're going to revolutionize a lot of the cyber policy and uh, ATO process in general is by having the flexibility to actually move our technology and not be locked into one vendor because of our own uh, authorizations, because of our own policy requirements. Yeah, I, I really like that. It's all about like eyes wide open as you make decisions, right? Like the decision itself is actually not the important part. It's the way you go about getting the information, talking to people, figuring out what's important and what's not that goes into the decision that's way more important. Um, Jeff, you had touched on this a little bit uh, when you were talking build versus buy, even if buy is free or open source software. There seems to be like a stigma around free and open source software in the DoD. I think it's gotten slightly better in recent times. 
Uh, maybe Matt, we'll start with you this time as our resident cybersecurity expert because you know what an ATO is. But like, can you talk a little bit about your experience in the Air Force and some conversations around free and open source software uh, and how we've maybe helped change the game there a little bit? Yeah, I think that the uh, the most dangerous thing about uh, the FOSS type software uh, is ignorance, right? And I'm talking about ignorance of the folks that are actually mandating that we don't go that route. Um, if you look at a number of the practices and the procedures for getting things on a new product list or uh, just in general, the amount of analysis uh, or lack thereof that went in uh, to a lot of the software being used within the government a decade ago. Uh, and again, you know, me being a software developer, I know what that process was. Um, then it, it would just, you know, scare the pants off you. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just short-sighted, right? It, and ultimately, ignorance isn't a bad word. It's just it, the definition is the absence of knowing. Um, so, you know, not knowing what the process is to get something approved uh, and then, you know, looking at something that has, you know, everybody's eyes on, I can understand how that's scary. But through education and then being able to understand what free and open source really means uh, and then, you know, setting up a practice, a, a process around how we're looking at that software, then that removes a lot of the fear uh, from actually being able to use it. Like we can scan the, these open source products. We know what risks that we're going to be taking on, right? And to an extent where we know more than what we do with a lot of COTS-based products. So if anything, we should fear free and open source less than we fear uh, COTS products that have IP that we're not allowed to see, right? Because at least I can scan those documents. I can look for uh, information that is going to potentially bite us in the end. And I can put in mitigations if that is indeed an issue. Um, so I, I think that uh, that's, that's where we're at. And you know, through the education pieces, I talk on a daily basis uh, about what we're trying to accomplish and how we're trying to uh, change the approved product list procedures, um, just so that way we have the information. And it's, you know, it's honestly the, the more information you have, the better decision you can make. Um, and we can get more information from a lot of the FOSS stuff. The discussion's a little silly, honestly, um, like focusing so much on FOSS as a risk, but pretend like somehow commercial software is more secure. It's all just software. It's instructions to a computer. Somebody wrote it, some human probably, maybe it was GitHub's little AI co-pilot, but a human wrote it at some point, right? And, and the point is like, do you trust random company X? It could be a big prime with thousands of people, but thousands of people aren't gonna know that code base. Like it may still be maintained by one dude at the company who might be thinking about quitting next week. And you don't have that information, right? Like we can complain all day about the, the FOSS ecosystem and the examples like the Colors.js thing that happened a few months ago or some other like stupid stuff that's happened in open source, but the risks are still just as, just as much there in commercial black box software. To Matt's point, if you can't scan the source code, I, I can't understand how you could possibly at, at a, in a better position than if, if you, it's black box to you. We have tools to help with this. I do think that the SBOM kind of, um, it's trendy right now, right? And there's some mandates that have come out, so that's cool. That'll help a little bit here. And Log4j, I think was a wake-up call for some people. Um, but like these risks have always been there. Open source commercial, it's all there. In fact, that's one of the strengths of DevSecOps 
and container security in general is we can still have less trustworthy software and put iron gates around parts of it to protect stupid stuff from happening. Like the log for shell, log for j stuff could have been mitigated or blocked by certain service meshes. Some of the service meshes done a bad job of answering that, right? Because the actual JNDI export thing that it's doing requires a network call that you can block at the container level. I know this is shocking people, right? Um, and not even like a tailored for that bug fix, but like prevented it from ever being a thing to consider, right? So there's like lots of things that we can do to mitigate this scary software. But when it comes to FOSS itself, it's, it's disingenuous to pretend that just because a company, which might be a three-person LLC or a 10,000-person company with two people who know that, that tool, somehow is magically better than open source, it's just, just it's simply false. Um, however, that being said, everything, I think it goes back to due diligence, right? You have to do your due diligence on investigation. Should you trust that software? Should you trust these contributors? Should you trust where it came from and how they built it? I do this with everything that we adopt. And the software I'm working right now for the submarine community, for the Navy, I have to be very careful. There have been tools I wanted to use, but they're written in Eastern Europe, right? And so like, I could probably justify that and probably get away with it, but it's gonna cause more friction with some of my government customers that would adopt it. So I choose not to do those things. Sometimes I have to write the code myself or find a different tool that is less optimal because it's an easier justification to government people when it comes to attribution of the code. Um, so there's like these, all these things that go into decisions um, when it comes to adoption of software that are very reasonable to make and are really kind of mission dependent. And like, if it's a, if it's turning on a light switch in a bathroom, it probably means less important things than launching a, you know, Trident missile. Like th those are different levels of like, do I care about the light switch coming on and off? Or do I care about the missile launching? Like we have to make decisions right appropriately. And so I think that really what it boils down to is whatever you're working on, you need to know the context and you need to know if that software is critical. But one last point, if you're using a computer today, you're using open source software. I don't care if it's Windows. I don't care if you're using a Mac or a PC. There is open source software on your machine. Maybe it's just OpenSSL or some of the library, but you are using open source software if you're using a computer, unless you designed the machine yourself and wrote the operating system yourself and you commercial licensed it you're using open source software. And so to pretend like you're not is, is just crazy to me. It's a good thing I wrote all the software on my Mac I'm running right now then. Thanks, Jeff. It wasn't a Mac. Best part of the podcast, which is uh, story time. And Jeff gets to start. I'll start by sharing because when I first met Jeff, I heard he learned Kubernetes at a car wash. And that was like one of my favorite lines I heard at, at Platform One. Anyways, you guys tell us... Uh, there's a lot of weird things that happen at Platform One to make things work and go, uh, whether it's a funny story or maybe some mission value we were able to deliver that that you liked. But uh, share your favorite story with with Drew and I and the audience on uh, what your favorite story was at P1. There was one time when I accidentally deleted production environment for SSO by clicking the wrong button. That was fun. I'm pretty sure somebody wanted to like hang me out to dry and beat me, uh, and it was attempted. Uh, <laughs> but that was, um, there's a lesson to learn about UX and when production and test environments are purely identical, except for one letter in the URL. Um, but anyway, uh, so that's a thing. But the actually more interesting, and more probably one I think is the Mattermost story. And what actually happened, I was in tunnel vision mode trying to do this weird platform one stuff. This was, I think, March timeframe and COVID restrictions are just happening. And I believe it was Eric Robinson. Um, I think he's a captain or major now. He was in Hawaii now. He's somewhere else, pilot dude, part of the Tron Air Force stuff. And he messaged me and he said, hey, these, these lock, lockdowns are going to make us all work from home. What are you guys doing about that? And my response was uh, nothing. 
it wasn't it wasn't even something and i was thinking about and i was like i so he messaged me that and a couple of times i was thinking like well you know this is gonna be a big deal for all, the government is like a dumpster fire when it comes to remote collaboration like it's it's embarrassing on so many levels um so like we could probably do something about this so i reached out to nick and lauren i messaged them late saturday night Sunday night and said hey i think we should do this i just talked to rob um and i was like i think we can solve something here to help get people collaborating again i think it could be matter most i know we wanted to redeploy that and we've already done it before we wanted to deploy the new stack and matt's team had just finished getting accreditation for the infrastructure side on on cloud one so we were like there's a, the stars are aligning here um, we didn't have big bang in a good place it was really really bad um so what me and josh wolf and i think jared dylan from the time d2iq he's now mycelia um we just like banded together worked for a couple two or three days a lot of hours and started shelling out just like provisioning and infrastructure and kubernetes stacks and and getting things running leveraging the accreditation that we had just been given um, we initially deploy like Mattermost with just login from Mattermost directly for cost reasons and all this crazy stuff. And it turned in from like a few hundred users to a few thousand users to tens of thousands of users. And we started rolling other features out and the big bang had to catch up. But that whole like crazy chain of events started with um, a, a, a pilot saying, hey, this is a pain point. You guys should think about solving this. And then me going to some people and saying, would you guys back this? And like it got all the way up to like the ODC idle level for some approvals and get it work, run the CNAP stuff through to it at the same time. And there was a bunch of stuff that had to happen that I didn't have to deal with, that Matt's team had to deal with, and others had to deal with to make it legal um, and, and deal with all the challenges to that that came from joint folks um, disagreeing with the accreditations. Um, but in the end, the result was we got the warfighters still able to do their job and still able to talk. And, and maybe it was like not the most ideal deployment or maybe it was bumpy. But who gives a crap because they were able to still do their job. And, you know, like there was a lot of people who complained about certain aspects of why we did that or, or why we did that. But the only reason I did it, the only reason I wanted to do it, and the only reason people backed it was because it was the right thing to do. Like everything else, screw it. Like we needed to do this. This was the right time to do the right thing. And this was like my dream was always to make the Air Force better and to make, make it grow and in and, and its way of innovative thinking. So this was like the op perfect opportunity. And, and Mattermost was the thing that started that. Of course, we built tons of other things on top of that, right? But lots of services for our actual goal was for developers to be supported. That was what we were supposed to be doing. Um, so then we had to go bolt that on afterwards. But Mattermost, it started because it, it started to ease the pain before, um, this was before the Office 365 stuff that I did, whatever that thing was called, I never used it. But before that stack was approved or purchased and they're bazillion dollars spent on that. We just threw something together over a few days with a few engineers just trying to do the right thing and help move the ball forward. And, and some missions adopted it for the next several years and two or three years, whatever it's been now, um, to, to do their mission value because it just made their life that much better. Yeah, and I'd have to say that, you know, the best, the best time that I've had uh, during a lot of these activities that Jeff and I have been partnered up on uh, was whenever we first came out here on TDY, uh, back when we were still trying to plan out what we were really wanting to do for Space Camp, um, we, Jeff, Mike, and myself, we were staying over at the Marriott, and I don't know how many of you guys know this, but Jeff has a little bit of an addiction to Dr. Pepper, um, and so on our way into the office, we had to stop off at a 7-Eleven, uh, so that way Jeff could go get his fix. Um, and while he went inside to go and get his drink, 
Mike Neerham and myself created a bunch of snowballs because it had just snowed that day. And as Jeff walked out, we just started pelting him uh, with snowballs. Uh, so that was probably my favorite time uh, doing all this. Uh, but in, uh, on the serious side, though, um, the flexibility that we've had, you know, we were a bunch of engineers that were trying to do the right thing, as Jeff mentioned, trying to get things done, trying to pivot fast uh, so that way we could uh, get, the, get the mission accomplished. Uh, so even what Jeff had just explained about that Mattermost server, uh, immediately after we got everything stood up and people started using it, it was spears that were being thrown at us. And um, I remember that we had a lot of senior leaders coming at us saying, yes, but is it a good environment? Like you guys have an ATO, but why, how does that matter? How, how do I know that that's actually good? Had nothing to do with, you know, the fact that an AO, an authorizing official had said that we met the requirements, uh, that our pen tests had said that we had secured it, they wanted more. Uh, so we were able to actually give our Kubernetes uh, cluster description and uh, all the things that you know made up that environment, as well as the Mattermost tool uh, to some folks from the 47th and have them do like an on-demand pen test uh, because the community was you know so much uh, concerned about what was going on and call it you know COVID fear or whatever the case may be. Uh, we gave that instructions to the 47th and they weren't able to find anything wrong with our deployment. Uh, so to me, that was the, the most proud that I've been that we were able to accomplish something. And from a security perspective, you know, being able to have our authorization, know that we've done our due diligence and actually created something uh, that was going to be used by mission owners and be able to be taken forward. Um, so I, I think that's got to be one of my best stories uh, at Platform One and just in general what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, you don't ever bring up the dirty reciprocity word in the cybersecurity world, but uh, uh, this has been a, a super fun episode to record and kind of uh, reminds me of old times, uh, but I appreciate you and Jeff both taking the time and even Jeff doing it while also uh, jockeying dad jobs with a sick child. Definitely know what that's like. So uh, ho hopefully the, the, the listeners enjoyed this one as well and I appreciate you guys' time. Thank you.